I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 34 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is filmmaker, author, stand-up comedian, and all sorts of other things, Judd Apatow. If you need a role model for multitasking on meaningful projects, Apatow is your guy. His new two-part documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, debuted on HBO and HBO Max last weekend, and it's a must-watch. It's a complex, intimate portrait of one of the most impactful comedians ever, someone whose work still feels vital, even though he's been gone for almost 14 years. Boy, everybody in this country's always running around yammering about their rights. I have a right, you have no right, we have a right, they don't have a right, the government has a right. Yeah, 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 fine. Listen, folks, I hate to spoil your fun, but there's no such thing as rights, okay? We made them up. This is Apatow's second standout documentary exploring a funny person's career and turbulent inner life, following the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, with whom Apatow worked on the great The Larry Sanders Show. Apatow's latest comedy, The Bubble, debuted on Netflix earlier this spring and attempts to do the near impossible, reflect the madness of and find the humor in the pandemic in real time. Not only does he work with his wife, Leslie Mann and daughter, Iris, along with David Duchovny, Kate McKinnon, Keegan-Michael Key and Fred Armisen, but he also takes a stab at special effects filmmaking with a movie within the movie, Cliff Beasts 6. Actors are animals. You are animal handlers. Sometimes they want to play with you. Sometimes they'll rip your balls off. Also released this spring was Apatow's new book, Sicker in the Head, more conversations about life and comedy. It's a follow-up to his 2015 bestseller, Sick in the Head. Many of these interviews were conducted during the pandemic and go deep into such topics as depression, prejudice, parental support or lack thereof, and trying to have the confidence to push forward in a brutal industry. Apatow speaks with, among others, David Letterman, Hannah Gadsby, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Mindy Kaling, Bowen Yang, Roger Daltrey, Kevin Hart, Hassan Minaj, John Cleese, and Tig Nataro. The intensely curious Apatow has been picking the brains of other creative people since he was a teenager. How does all this input affect his own work? In these projects, Apatow shows himself to be both teacher and student, mentor and mentee. Some artists spend their careers looking inward and Apatow is an introspective person as well. His personal vision is very much on display in his first four directorial features, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, The Underrated Funny People, and this is 40. All right, you know what? I don't want to get into some nasty fight. So can we please talk to each other the way the therapist told us to talk to each other? Fine. Fine. It makes me feel sad when you are dishonest. I understand it makes you feel bad when I am dishonest with you. It hurts my feelings when you treat me with contempt and corner me and try and trick me into lying. Okay. It makes me sad when it's so easy to trick you into lying because you're such a lying shitbag. He helped Amy Schumer and Pete Davidson tell their stories as he directed Trainwreck and The King of Staten Island, respectively. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna get a job or are you gonna leave the house? I'm gonna open that tattoo restaurant. No, like for real. It's never been done before. I looked it up. He produced Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Najani's The Big Sick, Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids, and Lena Dunham's series Girls. I just don't really think you understand the nature of female friendship. You're right, I don't. And I don't want to if it involves ignoring all logic and being totally hysterical. I just think that women get stuck in this, like, vortex of guilt and jealousy with each other that keep them from seeing situations clearly. Women get stuck? 
Okay, now you sound like one of those guys who thinks a woman should never be president because her menstruation will cloud her judgment. But they shouldn't be president because it, it could, their, their judgment. That all followed his collaborations with Paul Feig on the all-time great series, Freaks and Geeks. You know, not everybody in this world has to go to college. You know who didn't go to college? Einstein. Thomas Edison. Frank. Frank who? The dude who pumps my gas. And Adam McKay on the Anchorman movies, Talladega Nights, and Step Brothers. Now his daughters have joined the family business, with Maude Apatow attracting her own fan base through her excellent work as Lexi on the HBO series Euphoria. How does he feel about Maude and Iris pursuing acting careers? How did he experience his own return to stand-up comedy after many years off the stage? Did he take a different comedic approach to the bubble, knowing it would be seen mostly at home and not in theaters? Does he see himself moving into distinct new phases of his career as George Carlin did? How can an artist best respond to the world right now? Might he pivot to more serious works as Adam McKay has done? Does he plan to make This Is 50? Why does Judd Apatow work so much? Is he someone who never thinks he's doing enough? I've always enjoyed speaking with Judd Apatow, and I know you'll enjoy listening to him on Carol Pop. Have you been? I'm doing well. I, I, I'm a little under the weather right now. I, I just got a cold, and it's hit, it hit me hard. But uh, it is just a classic American cold. Can you get a cold now without panicking? Well, I had COVID three weeks ago, so I think... Uh, at least I know it's not that. It doesn't come back that quickly. Who knows? Maybe my immune system is weak from the COVID fight and this cold will be harder to battle. It's interesting talking to you now because I'm, I'm just, just getting ready to talk to you. There's so much to prepare for because I'm like, well, we should tie it to the bubble. I'm like, but wait a minute. You got sicker in the head. Wait a minute. You've got George Carlin, American uh, comedian. And, uh, and uh, you're always working on like a lot of things. Is that, is that always the case with you? I think so. I mean, early in my career, I worked on a screenplay for like two years and just that screenplay because I heard, oh, that's how James Brooks does it and Cameron Crowe does it. And then when I was done, no one would make it. And I thought, oh, I think you need a lot of things on the burners and hope that one of them goes. So I I tend to try to have a few things going just for the fear of none of them going. Are you someone who kind of wakes up every day thinking I'm not doing enough or are you like, Oh yeah, no, I'm busy. I'm good. And I ask that as someone who is always, I always feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not sure. I probably need to think about it. I certainly have some sort of workaholic tendencies. I like to make things. I like to be in the middle of the process, but also being in the middle of the process, I'm very stressed that I'm not doing a good job. So I don't like to be doing nothing. Although if I don't do anything for a while, I suddenly get into almost a euphoric state when the pressure disappears. And that pressure is just what I put on myself to not do a bad job. And I like doing documentaries because when you make a comedy, you just don't know if any jokes are going to work. It's all a mystery. It's all an experiment. With a documentary, you have all this footage and you know it's really good and you're just trying to figure out how to put it together, how to present it. And for some reason, it doesn't keep me up at night. I'm just as passionate about it. But with a joke, you're like, wow, one day we're going to show this to a room full of people. And if they don't laugh, we are fucked. (laughs) And that can keep you up at night. 
Well, and then there's a difference also between showing it to a room full of people and showing it to people in their living rooms. I mean, like you experience a comedy differently at home than you do, you know, in that, you know, crowded theater where everyone's, you know, laughing at the same time. And you would record your test screening audiences. I remember sitting with you uh, when you were working on This Is 40 and you could calibrate kind of where the laughs were based on recording the audience. And now we're in this other era. And I would think that just becomes harder and maybe, you know, and hopefully that crowd communal experience comes back. But for comedies in particular, I would think that would be really important. Yeah. They're, they're completely different experiences. You know, we, we have a movie called bros, which Billy Eichner stars in. He wrote it with the director, Nick Stoller, who did forgetting Sarah Marshall. And that's for the movie theater. And it comes out in, in September, the, the, the um, trailer just came out and we tested it in Chicago and in New York and Los Angeles and packed houses, 300 people. And they were so happy to watch it together. And it was such a great communal experience. And then we you know when I worked on the bubble, we didn't do that process because I said, I'm going to build this for sitting in bed, eating the sandwich while you're watching TV. Right. I tried to make something that I knew I would enjoy. Like when I'm home alone, I'm looking for something to watch. What am I looking for? And I tried to make it with that vibe, which is a little more almost like a Simpsons episode where <laughs> it's funny, but maybe with a crowd, it wouldn't get the same laugh, but, but it, it has all these weird, strange jokes that you might quote. And it, it's a different experience of comedy. And that was the experiment of it. So you actually built it to be viewed at home versus, you know, previous movies that you built to be viewed in the theater. Yeah. Cause I knew it would only be, viewed at home and I, I wanted to make a movie that yeah you could pee you know, in the middle you could pause and go <laughs> make a sandwich you go have sex with your spouse and then watch another 10 minutes of it. it 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 was made you know for that experience which i have all the time i, I you know what's fun about watching a movie at home and it has a different pace and it's a little bit more of a vibe than trying to crush in a theater where you're you're trying to make something that is emotional, but also at certain moments is like a freight train getting these monster laughs. And that, that was really fun to do, but there's certainly very different approaches. You have a lot of things going right now, though. It's it's interesting because I'm because I'm just finishing the Carlin doc, which is fantastic. Uh, I loved your Gary Shandling documentary as well. And like Gary Shandling, the, the theme of that was sort of finding looking in yourself and finding sort of the best artist within yourself. And it seems like what you're doing is almost the opposite in that you're feeding off the energy and knowledge of so many other people. I mean, like all these interviews in, in sticker in the head are really like these in-depth, you know, kind of soul searching, soul swapping kind of conversations and going deep into D George Carlin. Now, it, what is it that you get out of sort of processing so many other people's processes and lives? Well, when I first started doing interviews, I was interested in just meeting people, like knowing that they were real. I used to write letters to celebrities when I was a kid, when I was like 10 or 11, and hoped that Carol Burnett or Hal Linden would send me their autograph. And I think part of me just wanted to connect with show business. And then I also just wanted to understand, how do you do it? How do you get in? What are the steps? Now that I'm older, it's really like talking to coworkers and I'm saying, how did you do this? How did you do that? It's shop talk, but it's also, how are you doing? Are you falling apart? Are you evolving? Are you happy? Are you finding balance? Are you finding a way to 
continue to get better at what you do? Are you running out of gas? And they become very intimate conversations about a creative person's life. And I'm always trying to learn. I always try to stay in the head of there's a long way to go in terms of my education about doing any of these things that I try to do. Do these conversations and projects sort of change what your own art is? Like, do you notice differences in what you're doing? I think that it feeds, uh, they feed each other. I think I learned a lot about directing from making documentaries like the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling and some of what I learned about trying to be truthful, trying to get to the core of people, which is what Gary was always talking about. Some of those techniques probably affected the King of Staten Island, just getting as close as you can and as, and as personal as you can. I, I'm sure there's some storytelling techniques that you, you learn when you make a documentary that wind up in your head as you're writing a new screenplay. I'm not exactly sure, but I know it's a big soup. And hopefully, as I learn new things, somehow it makes what I'm trying to do better. Well, it's like they're the musicians who, you know, listen to as much as they can. And it becomes this, you know, in their head, like they're, you know, they have their, their stacks influences yeah. and their heavy metal influences and all of this stuff that they've listened to all over the years, their Beatles structure. And then there are your other people who are like, Oh, I just, I sit in a, a quiet room and I, and I only do my own thing and I try not to hear anything. And you're clearly in like that first group of, of people where you're just like pulling in as much as you can. Well, I come in as a fan first. I always loved comedy and as a little kid, loved the idea of show business. So I get a kick out of all of it. And when it comes to documentaries, I like the idea of organizing someone's life so people can appreciate it. It makes me so sad when people are forgotten. I'm a real hoarder. So the idea that I can go through all of George Carlin's stuff and try to make it make sense so that it works as both an explanation of his life and his work, but also a portal in for people to know about him. And then they'll go explore. HBO is going to put up a lot of his specials on HBO Max, so you can watch the whole specials and appreciate him with some context. And I think that's one of the best part about making these documentaries is I think it'll become the way that people discover a lot of these artists when it's 50 years from when they were around or a hundred years from when they were around. I think when we watch get back, that's how we'll learn about the Beatles and what they acted like and what their process was. And it'll make you want to listen to all the records. So uh, it, it, it feels like a, you know, a service to their, you know, their legacies. Yeah. I mean, with Gary Shandling and, and with George Carlin, you also had this treasure trove of resources to draw on and, and, you know, all of these journals from Gary Shandling, which you, which you found a really great way of presenting visually, because that can be tricky in a, in a, you know, visual medium, like a documentary film to like, here's, here's stuff he wrote. Uh, and George Carlin, you have a lot of writings too. And just this kind of mixture of just, you know, like, TV appearances and, you know, HBO specials and movie appearances and everything else. And getting that all together, it becomes this, this comprehensive view of someone that just wouldn't exist otherwise. And that works in a film medium that instead of a book, which also it would work in, but in a different way. Yeah. It has its own Robert Caro aspect to it in documentary form. I'm very interested in just the human condition. What, 
what had to happen for George Carlin to become George Carlin? And how did he choose to live his life? What were his emotional struggles in addition to his creative struggles? I think that maybe that's the difference with the types of documentaries that my co-director, Michael Bonfiglio, and I try to make. We're probably even more interested in the personal side of their lives. You know, George Carlin was from a family where his brother was abused by his father. And so his dad was beating up his brother from the time he was two till he was six. And so he came from this household where his mom wanted him to escape and she got divorced in 1938. I mean, that's pretty rough. I mean, Catholics didn't let people get divorced back then, but she really feared for their lives. And how that defines someone's point of view. Suddenly you're more wary. You become a critical thinker. You don't trust power. You don't trust authority. And how that led to, you know, if you also like Danny Kaye becoming a comedian who breaks things down and finds comedy and hypocrisy and sniffs out the bullshit. I mean, that's what I'm in it for. What what happened to you as a person that made you what kind of artist? Well, stand-up comedy is it's your proverbial, you know, river where it's like sort of never the same twice. And you have to be sort of contemporary and on top of what's going on at that moment. And I mean, I had a film series that I was had the music box theater several years ago called, is it still funny where we sort of look at old films and, you know, even films, some of them hold up really great. And some of them, the humor has kind of changed and the things you remember being hilarious weren't, but other things maybe still stand up. And so George Carlin is reacting to current events, 20 years ago and he's railing about you know how the right wing hates women and and going on about you know the greed of companies and trying to make money off of everything and the war on this and that and the other thing and and you're watching it now and instead of being like oh that's a really sweet little time capsule you're like holy shit he's talking about like today like news that he missed by like a decade and a half of not being alive but it totally holds up in this kind of startling contemporary way well his you know his main bit about abortion i believe is from the 90s and maybe even the early 90s i think it was yeah, actually i think it was it was i was thinking, i was thinking it wasn't even 20 years ago it was 30 years ago because it was around the gulf war that special was it was from 1992 jamming in new york and it went around the internet when we started talking about Roe versus Wade and how right. it might be, uh, it might disappear. Uh, and he was very concerned about women's rights, their right to choose. You know, he, he didn't trust the conservative line. He really felt like they weren't anti-abortion. They were anti-woman. And he said that they, they want to make women brood mares for the state they only care about you when you become military age and part of the routine was about how when you're pre-born you're fine when you're preschool you're fucked and how they didn't want to take care of people once they're born they don't care what if you live or die once you're born and a lot of his philosophy was about how these people just want to be in power they just want us fighting I mean, abortion didn't used to be such a big issue, but it's a great wedge issue to keep people fighting and to get people all excited to vote. And who's who benefits when everyone votes? Well, rich people who can get their keep their taxes low or companies that don't want regulation on their businesses. So I, I always feel like 
There are all these issues that are created just to keep certain people in power or keep certain people rich that they don't care about. I don't think most wealthy Republicans care about abortion personally. I don't think they're like a religious group. I think it's just the issue, along with guns and now uh, gay rights, that they use to keep us fighting, to keep them in power so they don't have to pay taxes or they can make money. I mean, George Carlin really thought polarization was a tool to distract you while they run off with all the money. And that's what's really sad because it's really not about us all solving problems. It's like a game and most of the population is just a pawn in it. Right. Did you, did you go into this project thinking we need, we as a society need to hear this voice and these points of view right now, or was it more, you know, he's a comedian in, you know, a profession I care a lot about. He's a person I care about and we need to sort of bring his life back or was it both? I'm not interested in, in creating it to get his ideas out there. That wasn't, why Michael and I took the job. I took the job because he is certainly one of our top two or three comedians of all time. He's somebody that people knew nothing about his personal life. And I thought it'd be interesting to explore that. And I was interested in the fact that his routines kept trending online whenever something would happen in the world. And it was interesting that no one else's routines were trending. It's not like Real versus Wade is at risk. And there's five routines trending. It's only him. Big Pharma comes up. It's only him. You know, you know, gun control debates. It's only him. It's really strange how he was able to boil down these topics and make such a strong, clear case that material that is at least 14 years old, some of it is 50 years old, feels like it was written for this moment. And that's what interested me. Why is that happening? I didn't think that making this documentary would convince anyone to change their mind. I just thought, well, he's he's the best and it, it would be a challenge to try to explore his life. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about him, too, is that he has these distinct stages in his career where he's kind of doing, you know, John Davidson and you know, he, he, and, he and Richard Pryor are doing this network TV, goofy, happy stuff. And then, you know, he he turns and becomes like the hippie, you know, truth teller. And and then he has, the, you know, later when people think he's sort of washed up and they're making fun of him on SCTV, he becomes you know, this other powerhouse comedian with his voice. Do you, do you look at your own career sort of in a similar way or try to and think, okay, I'm, you know, it's time for this stage or this stage or hoping so. I don't know if anybody really knows exactly what they're doing or if they're entering a new phase. I think that people are aware that they don't want to be stagnant and you always want to go, follow your passion. And usually that is something new. So my last movie was the bubble and it's a little bit more like a Mel Brooks movie, you know, uh, or the tradition of movies like Tropic Thunder. And I just thought, well, the world is such a mess now. I think it's time to go silly because it's such a mess. Let's just be goofy. People just need like a hard laugh at this moment. Before that, I was interested in Pete Davidson's life and his family and his father's sacrifice on 9-11 you know, how can I make a human comedy, you know, about people who are willing to risk their lives to save other people and the people who are left behind, you know, when they do sacrifice their lives. But there's no plan. You're just pulled towards following 
uh, an idea that you feel like you want to spend years of your life exploring. And then later it looks like you were shifting in some way, but really you're just trying not to repeat yourself. Well, and you've had a long history at this point of, of, you know, amplifying new voices where, where you're bringing, you know, like Pete Davidson or Amy Schumer or Kristen Wiig, uh, you know, bridesmaids or girls. I mean, it's just, has that, has that always been something with you where you sort of get energy off of that or want to, you feel like your responsibility is to kind of amplify these other voices? Some of it is, it's, it's, it's just fun to work with people who haven't done a ton yet. It's fun to try to figure out how they would work in a movie. A lot, a lot of times I'm asking them what story they're most passionate about. So when you're working with someone on their first movie, as opposed to their 30th movie, you're really getting, you know, maybe like the main idea that they want to express at that stage of their life. So the King of Staten Island really was, you know, a fictional way for Pete to talk about some very personal issues with his family. But I don't think there's 20 other King of Staten Islands waiting to be made by Pete. That was the big story. And I like trying to help someone figure out how to turn that into a movie. The same could be said for girls uh, or, or the big sick. I right. love when people are passionate. I love it when this is the most important thing in their entire lives. It's not just a project. It's the project. And it is fun to work with new people because they don't have any bad habits and they'll take big risks. They, they almost don't know what the stakes are. <laughs> so they, they go really deep. Well, and then the bubble is, is you going inward on, this is what we're experiencing right now. And uh, so it became this personal project when you've had these other sort of collaborative things, but also like it had to be done sort of on the fly because it was responding to, you know, things as they were happening. Um, and you know, that'll be a really interesting movie to sort of revisit. Maybe at some point we'll be like, we'll actually look back on the, the pandemics being over. I don't know. Um, well, it's a funny kind of movie because, you know, a lot of people talk about comedy and they say, Oh, oh too soon. You can't make that joke yet. It's too soon. And with the bubble, it's like, it's not even too soon. It's still happening. And there seemed to be a madness in trying to capture comedically this pressure we were all under, mainly about lockdown and being isolated and having your life suddenly stop. And so it's a, a silly movie, but underneath it, it's really, you know, about us trying to keep our lives going and assessing right. what, 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 what do our choices mean in our relationships, in, in our jobs and, the one thing I like a lot about it is certainly in this moment for a lot of people, it's like, I'm not ready to goof around this. And I get that hundred percent, but I do think in a couple of years, people will think it's so crazy that someone tried to make a comedy about this moment. <laughs> maybe one of the only comedic time capsules that captures what this moment felt like and how, how strange and troubling it was. How therapeutic was it for you just to get working and make that movie? Well, I just needed to get out of the house. That's for sure. I, I mean, I, it was, uh, it was made about eight months, nine months into the pandemic. And I had been doing a lot of walks on the beach and just talking to my, my friends and trying to think of ideas. And I didn't think I would make anything because I didn't know if anyone would let me make anything. The business hadn't figured out what the protocols would be to shoot safely. 
And I started thinking, oh, I could make something with a small cast, like a Christopher Guest movie. And if I made a movie about people making a movie, well, then the whole movie is just a soundstage in the hotel. So a lot of it was, how can you do something safely? And then I realized maybe I could really make the special effects look great. Like they could look exactly like Jurassic Park and that every once in a while when they're shooting, it just falls apart. You see the green screens and you see how it's, right. it's actually done and what the fights are over subjects like this. And it became a little more complicated, but the core idea was, you know, what do we do when we're all in this uh, purgatory? And it's funny with actors because actors are, you know, egomaniacal, as I'm sure I am to some extent. And so they're fun to beat up on and, and show them fall apart. In a way, it's why people are so fascinated by the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial. Is people are, you know, people live vicariously through the struggles of people in show business, even though their struggles are the same as everybody else's. They're so fascinated that even though they're successful, that they're dealing with the same types of traumas and issues that, that they are. It's amazing to me how many people are commenting on that trial, like hour by hour, minute by minute. And, and, and part of me is like, I understand why it's interesting. Part of me is just like, are we, we're so attuned to passing judgment on everything right now that that's sort of at the top of mind for a lot. Well, it becomes Tiger King, you know, like people are really stressed. It becomes like sports. I only understood sports in the last few years. I, 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 I never really under, understood what people got out of them. I, I was really into sports and following teams in high school, but I found it very painful when my team lost, I would feel so bad. Right. And I stopped following things so closely, but lately I realized it's like almost a false sense of caring. Like you care about sports, but not the way you care about your family and your life. And so there's something wonderfully distracting about caring, but only to like a six, you know, it's, it's a limited kind of caring. And I think people do that with things like a, like trials, like it's not my problem and it's a distraction, but also there's something very familiar in it, a familiar struggle. And, and there's something very relatable because it's, what is it about? It's about a bad relationship. It's about people under stress and people melting down and maybe people take some sort of comfort in the idea that life is hard for everybody. Everyone's trying to get through. Everyone melts down every once in a while. And uh, it isn't any easier on those people. In a lot of ways, it, it can be more challenging because, you know, for some people, when their dreams come true, they realize that it didn't make them happy. It didn't solve their problems. They're left with themselves. They're left to deal with the real traumas and that's why you see a lot of people crash and burn. Right. Well, and it gives, gives people something to weigh in on that doesn't have implications about the end of democracy and, you know, the end of health as we know it and, you know, nuclear war, yeah. World War Three, that I mean, sort of thing. The, the, the sad part is I think a lot of people lose their compassion for them. And they are real people and there, there is real suffering there. Right. People can lose touch with that. I, f I feel like in general, it's kind of a challenging time for empathy right now because we're bombarded with so many horrible things going on on so many levels that it's like, well, a million people died of COVID. Well, okay. 
I, I worry, and I don't know if that, that it's, it sort of feels like people are getting too used to, I used to think, oh, the internet's going to be great and cell phones are great because you could have cameras that'll show, you know, people abusing people. And then when they see it, they'll be outraged. But now there's this constant churn of it and everyone's like, okay, you know, another cop did another horrible thing. Does that sort of thing plague you? Just this sort of, just, I don't know, erosion of empathy in our culture? Well, everything about technology has numbed people out. George Carlin talked about this. He says, you know, we're all addicted to our gizmos. We all have a phone that will make us pancakes and rub our balls. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, you know, we don't have a very educated electorate. We don't have a lot of critical thinkers. And he felt like that that was almost by design, that if people were educated about everything that was happening and thinking deeply about it, they wouldn't tolerate what's going on. And so if you can keep people distracted and fighting with each other, they won't demand that you deal with fossil fuels. They won't demand their rights. They won't demand the, the police to take care of people in a, in, a, in a less violent, toxic way. And... It, it is more than people can handle. I think if you scroll through the news, you're just seeing so much anger and hate and murder and madness and conflict. And then at some point you just give up on all of it. You just go, there's nothing I can do. Some people just engage and they want to fight all day long. Then other people just check out. And how could you not check out? It's too much. I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch Live at Five every day with Jack Cafferty and Sue Simmons in New York. And the news was very predictable. There would be like one story about the weather and one story about the mafia and one story about like the Manhattan borough president running for re-election. And then you'd have, you know, the new you'd have the weather and then see what the Mets were doing. And it didn't feel like an assault. It didn't feel like the world was caving in. It, it never felt like the end of times. Uh, and uh, and now just because we know the bad thing that's happening in every state in the country, in every country in the world, if you pay attention to it, it really, it really breaks your, your spirit. And then I think politicians take advantage of it. We always heard about you know, Donald Trump and Republicans flooding the zone. And if there was just so much going on, they wouldn't get in trouble for the thing that happened three days ago. And I'm, and I'm sure that's really done a number on people. They don't, You know, they don't know what to pay attention to because there's just so much coming at them. You and I early on had talked about Harold Ramis and one of the things that he had inspired with you was this idea that he had this sort of team of people who was... um, who he was working with and he was sort of come back to how important has that been for you to just sort of have your, your regulars and collaborators and feeling like you're part of a, a team? Well, I, I have that, you know, with, you know, some crew people with some actors, there's a little bit less of that than there used to be. Everyone has gone on and created their own careers and fiefdoms. So, so there's less of that, but you know, it's fun that, you know, with uh, a movie like The Bubble, I get to work with Leslie Mann and my daughter Iris. And, you know, but there was a lot of people I had never worked with before, like Keegan-Michael Key and Peter Serafinowicz and Karen Gillan, David Duchovny, I hadn't worked with since the Larry Sanders show. So that was 
Right. Special. I had worked with Fred Armisen since Anchorman. And uh, it's fun when you work with people before because you just have a sense of what they do. And it's really fun to work with friends because you, you do know their sense of humor really well. And each movie is a, a bit of a mix of that. I'm hoping to do This is 50 so I could get to work with Paul Rudd and Leslie again and Bowen and Iris and, and show everybody where they are now. But each experience is, is different. When we did The King of Staten Island, I hadn't worked with anybody on that movie before. Other than Robert Smigel, the owner of the pharmacy, who got uh, robbed, who I wrote, you don't mess with the Zohan with. So are you doing This Is 50? I hope so. I'm outlining it right now, and we'll see if it falls together. But it's one of those movies that I feel like everybody watches when they turn 40, and you know, it's really grown uh, in esteem with the crowd. It's held up really well, and uh, I'm hoping I can revisit it. So, so you know, it's like my 28 up. Or right. Everyone's uh, the family still together at fifty. Well, we'll see. The, the we'll live see. the live music the live music scene can't have helped. Uh, you know the the professional side of it, but uh, we'll see how Grand Parker's doing. There you go, and well, and also like I have your record store day uh, Warren Zevon compilation as well. So you do that on the side too. Yeah, and then I you know I work on these books. These like the new book sticker in the head where I interview comedians and. You know, I'm just always, always looking to find a new person that I could force to talk to me. You know, that, that like, you know, I was able to talk to Letterman for the new book. You know, what yeah, that was great. an hour and a half with Letterman to, to to ask him about things, and you know, he's someone that really anointed so many of us just by having us on the show, just by saying Adam Sandler was funny and having Adam on when Adam was like a kid. It, it was so important to to many of us. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, well, I just want you to know you affected so many of our lives and whether by having us on the show or, you know, or having us do stand up or just inspiring us. And then he said, that's right, Judd, there'd be no comedy without me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a perfect Letterman comment. <laughs> he doesn't like taking compliments, but it was nice to be able to tell him directly. Absolutely. But, but then you're also speaking about like depression, you know, with Gary Goldman and, and yeah. other, and other people. And, and it's, and there's a lot of, I mean, it's a deep book. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, I'm just reading it through and, and it, you know, it's not just sort of comedy tips and how to deliver a joke best. I mean, it really is about dealing with these deep issues and, and the way that comedy helps you address them, which I also found fascinating. Yeah. And it's also about like how hard it is to get into comedy. And, 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 you know, there are people in it like Bo and Yang from Saturday Night Live, you know, who's, you know, whose parents are from China and they didn't really understand his interest in what he was doing. And right. He definitely uh, had a, you know, a circuitous journey to being in comedy. I, I noticed there are a lot of people in families, uh, you know, of immigrants where, they don't really get it. <laughs> That's a job to be funny, to stand on stage, to be silly. They, and, and it takes a lot of strength to, to pursue a creative life and, and not something that to your family might seem like a safer path. Do you look at working with more of these people when you're talking to them? Or is it, is it again, just sort of creating this community of people who sort of understand these issues and are trying to grow from them. Well, I always want to work with anybody who's really talented, but the, 
The idea is the thing that joins us together. If there isn't a great idea, we can't work together. And so it's fun to talk to people and say, hey, what are you thinking about? What do you want to write about? And every once in a while, I think, oh, I think I could be helpful with that. And sometimes they have great ideas, but I think, oh, I don't know how to do that. I don't understand your idea. Right. It would be great. I would go see it, but I don't understand it. I couldn't you know, give you advice or help you execute it. And then other times I think, I think I get that. It's it's interesting too, because you, you've sort of been, you're kind of wearing these two hats of like mentor, teacher, but also student. And, and I'm wondering sort of which is sort of more important to you at this point. Uh, I mean, I always want to be in student mode. I, I think that's what keeps you from getting stale. And that's why making documentaries was interesting because I, I didn't start making documentaries till eight or nine years ago. It was a very late career thing to do. Just like I'd like to write something for the theater. I've never written anything for the theater. It'd be nice to try to figure that out, that out and have that experience. I always think there's not enough comedy in the theater that there aren't any new Neil Simons really taking over the theater. It'd be fun to try to, to, to write a play. So like an original play, as opposed to, you know, this is 40, the musical or something like that. Yeah. It'd be fun to try to write a play. I haven't had the courage to do it yet, but it's definitely on my list of things. I hope that I, that I can get out of my way and, and try to do. And I always like to mentor people because people mentored me, people like Gary Shandling and Roseanne and Jim Carrey, you know, they gave me big breaks and they were very kind to me. And I feel like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to start passing your wisdom on to other people or helping them with their projects. And it meant so much to me when Gary Shanley would read the 40 year old virgin and give me notes and try to tell me what the core themes were and what I should pay attention to. And it feels appropriate to try to do that for other people. Are there other people, subjects that you're looking at for the next documentary? We are beginning to look at it. There was an article today where someone said they should let Judd do all the dead comedians. And it's funny because I was telling somebody I would love to do a a documentary series called Dead Comedians. (laughs) So maybe, maybe I'll get the opportunity to do some more. But there's no one like in your mind where you're like, oh, this is the next one we have to have to do. There's one or two things we started shooting that we're excited about that we haven't announced yet. And I'm not sure what the next main one will be. I really hope that as a result of the really strong reception to this, that I'll get to make a ambitious one. You know, sometimes these are expensive because all the clips are expensive and to do them right and to, to do big two part things, it it requires a pretty big commitment. So I'm, I'm hoping that if people like this, they'll want me to make another one. Aside from this is 50, do you have other scripts that you're working on or have written? Uh, I have a couple of things floating around, but during the pandemic, I thought I wasn't really doing much. And then I realized in the last few months, Oh, I worked on this book and I worked on this documentary and this movie. And now that's all ending. And it certainly should be a time for rest and to recharge that's probably why I'm sick right now. Like, you know how you like you get sick when right. the last day of something and you just 
crumble. So I'm going to try to take a, you know a fair amount of the summer off, and then maybe maybe something will occur to me. I remember spending time on the set of Anchorman Two, profiling Adam McKay, and he since then has taken you know you know, change what he's doing with, you know, like big short and vice and don't look up. Um, I'm sort of wondering what you've thought of that trajectory. And if you sort of could see doing any sort of like topical, like less, you know, like more serious sort of thing, I'm, yeah. I'm serious is a bad word for it, but, you know, doing any kind of, you know, right turn or left turn, like in those, in that mode. Well, well everybody's that. stretching, you know, whenever we talk about comedians like Jim Carrey, taking a chance. People are always really hard on people when they do something new. So when Jim Carrey did the cable guy, people gave him a hard time about it, but he was like, no, I'm going to try a lot of different things. And then he did eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. And he did the Truman show and he did man on the moon and Sandler did uncut gems and, and uh, punch drunk love. I, you know, I love when comedy people do things like that. I love that Adam McKay did don't look up. I feel like it's very, in the spirit of George Carlin's work, Jim, George Carlin wanted to punch you in the balls to wake you up. A lot of his stuff was so dark and so in your face because he couldn't believe you weren't paying attention. He couldn't believe that we weren't making adjustments and taking better care of each other and taking care of the earth better that he would just try to shock you. And I felt like don't look up was in that tradition. So, you know, it's amazing what Adam has accomplished. Succession is one of the great, shows on TV, maybe one of the greatest shows ever on TV. And I also hope he does big, hard comedy again, because there's very few people who do it like him. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just impressed. He's a real inspiration. Yeah. I remember talking to you ages ago and, and I think you said the two people who made you laugh the hardest in person were Adam McKay and Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. Adam McKay on a set thinking of lines in the moment, yelling funny lines to the actors. It's a really remarkable thing to watch. And certainly Melissa McCarthy, when we worked with her on, on Bridesmaids, this is 40, just explosively funny. I mean, there are people who are funny and there are people who really like knock you out of your chair. It's interesting because there are a lot of people who are like, oh, comedy, you can't do, you can't do comedy anymore because, you know, we've become too restrictive or anything. I mean, do you feel more inhibited to do anything that you would have done, you know, 10, 20 years ago. I think times change and what people think is appropriate changes. There's obviously an issue where if you're too concerned with hurting anyone's feelings, it's hard to be funny. You know, part of what we like about comedy is we give people a hard time about who they are. And that's usually not an issue for what I do, because that's at the core of what I'm going for. But there's probably a fair amount of self-censorship. I was talking to a friend of mine about it, and I said, well, it seems like everybody's working and everyone's selling out arenas, and, and, it, and it's a healthy time for comedy, if you really think about it. And they said, nah, people are holding back. People are scared and it's watering it down. So I'm not sure I have to think more about it. I, I always feel like that's the fun. That's the challenge to understand the times, to think about what you want to say and to find a way to say it in a way which makes the audience really happy. 
And yes, you can't get everybody, but it's my job to communicate with you so that we have a great experience together. But other people think comedy is supposed to be a provocation and it's supposed to cross the line. I think the hard part is in the old days, if you didn't like something, people like George Carlin would say, change the channel. But now if you make something, the people who aren't your fans and who would never really know about it or watch it, will see a little piece of it or hear about it or read an article about it and attack you. It's kind of like if you were a fan of, uh, you know, country music, but, but, you know, heavy metal was being sent to you in little pieces every once in a while and you got enraged by it. Right. But it's not really for you. It's for the people who like that. And we all have I'm, to- imagine if Randy Newman were like making his albums from the seventies now, and people just took like little snippets of, you know, rednecks and yeah. other songs that he did. And you'd be thinking, Oh my God, he would not be able to do it. And it's brilliant satire that would have a hard time right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's changed with the times and he's found a way to continue to do what he does. So, you know, it's okay that, you know, things change, but the bigger concern is are, are people able to really express themselves or, you know, are they shutting themselves down? And hopefully people are just looking at the world and seeing it as a challenge and finding a way to get their ideas across. I mean, we still have South park. We still have all these shows like John Oliver and the daily show and people go pretty hard. There's a lot of comedians that go really hard and there's a whole group of comedians that have their own podcasts and they don't care about the mainstream. They're finding huge audiences that just go directly to them. So it's, it's all evolving pretty quickly. And I'm not sure my full opinion on it. I, I, because I want people to not feel disrespected, but there, you know, there's certainly an argument that, you know, not everything is for everybody. Right. Some people well, like harsh stuff. Some people like, you know, Norwegian death metal and you know, you, you don't have to listen to it. I don't, I, I do like Altero. <laughs> I, I do. I do wonder whether we're going to look back on the Oscars from this year and, you know, having one of the world's most popular movie stars slapping a comedian on stage and whether that's going to have like some it's whether we're going to look back on it and think that was some sort of turning point or whether it was just this crazy, horrible thing that happened that isn't going to happen again. But it seems like that that, that idea that people sort of defend violence as a reaction to a joke uh, was disturbing aside from the whole act of watching the violence, you know, on live television. I don't think it's a turning point as much as a symptom of a very stressful time and no one escapes that stress. It doesn't matter if you're a famous person or a successful person, you know, this has all done a number on us and it comes out in all sorts of different ways. So you don't think comedians are feeling like, oh, I'm going to, I got to watch it because someone might come up and attack me. I do think that they worry about that, but I think they worry about that generally anyway. It is a, an environment that is dangerous. Sometimes people are drinking. There's unstable people in the crowd sometimes. 
it, it, it isn't necessarily the safest occupation on, on a good day. So signaling to people that it's okay to cross that line is very scary to comedians, but hopefully these will just be a few anomalies and things will return to what they were. But there, but a lot of comedians have stories of this happening to them, usually once or twice in their careers where they felt like they were in a truly dangerous conflict. You'd gone back to stand-up comedy after years of not doing it. Um, I think right around the time the train wreck came out. How was that experience for you sort of getting back into those waters and, you know, did it make you want to do that more? And it also did it kind of expand your, you know, prompt some more growth for you artistically? Well, you know, I, I, yeah, I started again eight years ago. I had done it seven years uh, for seven years, starting in high school. And then I took off a couple of decades and I, I liked what Amy Schumer was doing. And I was jealous. I thought she was having so much fun and I got bored of just being alone. I wanted to be around people. And then the more I did it, the more I realized, Oh, it kind of tunes me into myself. Also in a lot of ways, it's a, it's like a tuning fork. You know, you, you get a real sense of what people find funny, what they're thinking about. It's great to look 200 people in the eye and have a conversation. It can only help everything that, I'm trying to do. And I always have a very negative, critical voice in my head that tells me to not write and to shut up. You know, like we all have that critical voice. And I find that going on stage is a way for me to assert some attempted self-esteem and the right to express myself. And it feels healthy mentally to do it. So is that something you want to do more? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't do it an enormous amount. I'm in New York right now. I've been going on stage at the Comedy Cellar every night and writing a lot and trying a lot of new things, and it's been really fun. But I don't have any plans to like, go on the road for a year or anything, but I'm getting a little older, and it might be fun to commit to some more live stand-up during a, a section of a year that I've I've done before. I probably enjoy it more than anything. It's just a hard lifestyle. It's hard to be on the road. It's hard to hard to leave town. It's hard to leave your family. So I usually make a very conscious choice not to do much of it for that reason. But if there was a window where it made sense, it, it would be fun to do a little bit more. And is, is each of these sort of a separate skill? Like if you're doing stand up for a while, does that inform your screenwriting or are they just totally, you know, one really doesn't influence the other? I think it does, but I just don't know how. I just know if I'm doing a lot of stand-up and then I switch to a script, I'll probably be funnier. I just learned something. My brain is acquiring some new piece of information, but I probably couldn't define what it is. And in the meantime, your your daughters are both acting now. Um, my my older daughter will just randomly text me, you know, Maude is amazing on Euphoria <laughs> and 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 thinks she's like the coolest and and really, really great. Um how involved are you in those careers and how much of are you, you like, you know, okay, I'm going to step back and be the proud dad. Yeah. I'm not involved in it at all. She, you know, she auditioned to be in a movie that the creative euphoria made Sam Levinson called assassination nation. And he really liked working with her and he wrote her a part in euphoria and they have a pretty great collaboration going on. 
it was fun for me to watch because I felt like, oh, he really understands her. He's really writing for her character in a, in a brilliant way. He, he got her. And I just watched from the sidelines and I'm, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm, I'm really blown away just by the show. And I, I feel like the first two years was like a two year movie and everything that happened in that arc was to get to this message that he landed on at the end of, of the season. It really felt like it was about like trauma and the way people act out their damage and about healing and, and facing your pain. I, I was really, really uh, blown away by how he stuck the landing at the end of the second season. I'm really happy for Maude to be in something that's so special and creatively ambitious. Do, do they come to you and, or Leslie and, you know, for advice and guidance and support. And I mean, obviously support, but like, what's your uh, role in all of this? I mean, she tells us about her day, but our advice generally is very simple. We're just like, it's hard. It's hard work. Get your rest, eat well, you know, stay centered. It's a marathon, you know, do your homework, know what you're doing. And, and that's, that's how you're going to do your, your best work. Just how to be a healthy collaborator with the show, you know, with Sam, it's a, you know, it's, it's a lot of work uh, to work in television. It's a lot of hours and uh, the scenes that they write are emotionally challenging. And I'm in awe of how, how she's able to perform some of those scenes it's it's really really special work so all we really can say is get a good night's rest and learn your lines and if you feel like you stumbled they probably got what they needed they you know because you always wonder when you get home did i nail it so i think we all feel the way i come home and go oh my god i hope i that seems funny enough i hope i got what i needed so i don't think our we really advise as much as say, you know, this is the reality of a working day on a set. You do the best you can, you give it all you have, and then you hope your collaborators are strong and they know what to do with you and with the footage. Yeah, I liked what you said in Sicker in the Head where where you're talking about the idea of that your daughter's going into this business and you're like, it's the family business, you know, and you know, your, your parents were actually encouraging of you to be creative or is there a lot of people's stories are about how they overcame, you know, the disapproval and everything else. And, and, and you just pointing out the inconsistency of, you know, this is what you and your wife do for a living. You know, why should you say, Oh, don't do that. Well, we love it. So it is hard. It's hard to get work. It's hard to keep your self-esteem. It's hard to handle so much rejection. It's hard to make things and some of them come out great. Some of them don't. There's certainly all sorts of weird emotional challenges to the business, but there's nothing I'd rather be doing. And if she wants to do it, I would never discourage her. I know people who are in the business who really discourage their kids from going into it. But I think about all the fun I've had and all the crazy experiences I've had. I, I wouldn't, I, I'd be lying if I said, Oh, it's a nightmare. But it can be. I mean, it can be because I think there's a lot of luck involved. Things really have to fall your way to, to have a, a a solid career. But 
to me, it's all about being creative. If you're passionate and creative, you don't have to be, you know, the, the most successful person in the world. You can get dissatisfaction from the creative process. It doesn't have to be about success. Do Maud and Iris have similar aims, you think, in this career? Or is, is each going to sort of go off on a different path? I always preach, learn how to write, learn how to direct, learn how to produce, learn how to create a project. If you can't get a job from auditioning, you want to be able to find opportunities to be your own boss. And I'm not sure how aggressively they'll pursue that, but I, I say that to everyone I meet. You, you, you want to be able to create your own projects because sometimes there isn't a good project around to work in. So it's, it's fun to, to on the side to be trying to build your own. Right. Well, you and I have in common that we both have two daughters. So we're sort of the sole male in the household. How does that, how does that shape what you do? Well, I mean, I spend a lot of time walking around Sephora following my daughters while they pick up makeup. So I, I am, the, I am the only uh, man uh, around a fair amount of time. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it's great. I, I, I love it. I'm very, very blessed to have them. They're all, all of them are amazing and funny and interesting. So I just count my blessings. I feel like I've learned so much. I need to be in one of those body switch categories where it's like the guy who grew up with just a brother, then raises a family of girls and then goes back to high school and has much more self-confidence because he realizes <laughs> how, cra how crazy girls are, which, you know, instead of being intimidated by them, he's like, Oh, okay. That's why they make those movies because we all felt like idiots in high school and there's nothing better. Leslie was in one of those, those movies, uh, uh, 17 again. Oh, right. Uh, and, and, it, and it's great. Adam Shankman directed it. Matthew Perry's in it. And Zach Efron. It, it's one of those premises. We, we all wish we could go back and do it better. What's your favorite like music cue you've seen in a movie or used in a movie? I love using music cues because it makes me pretend it lets me pretend I'm collaborating with Paul McCartney or right. Zivon. I, I love the use of I'm one by the who and freaks and geeks when Bill is watching Gary Shandling by himself after school on the dinosaur show. We did a whole episode of freaks and geeks where we had all songs by the who, and that was just the greatest treat of all time. I believe we even use the song Boris, the spider. Wow. <laughs> I, I interviewed, I've, I've, I've interviewed two members of XTC so far. And, and then yeah. one of my favorite cues was no language in our lungs on the um, freaks and geeks episode. That was a great Paul Feig cue. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, I appreciate, you know, you're, you're being generous in, in talking about, you know, everything you, in, you know, talk about and do what you do. Glad we had a chance to do it. That's a wrap on episode 34 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Judd Apatow for joining us amid all of his projects and conversations. I strongly encourage you to watch George Carlin's American Dream on HBO and HBO Max. You also should check out The Bubble on Netflix and read Sicker in the Head, more conversations about life and comedy. It's published by Random House and available from many excellent independent booksellers. While you're at it, follow Judd Apatow on Twitter, J-U-D-D-A-P-A-T-O-W. Thanks as always to web designer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo who recorded the Carol Pop theme. 
Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, another person who has a million things going on at once that does them all well. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another lively conversation with another creative person. Thanks. Thanks.